Let's pray. Father, our lives are yours. Life is a gift from you. All the things we take for granted, standing and sitting here, are by your provision and your design. Hearts that are beating. Minds that are thinking and loving. Lord, the blessed gift of Christian fellowship, truth, self-awareness, and a day to think about the purpose of life and the greatness of the life giver. Now I pray, Lord, bless us as we open your word. Make it live. It is alive. May it live for us. So help us to be humble now and to walk with you and to give you complete lordship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Uh, this morning's topic will be a little challenging for some. Challenging partially because the metaphor of marriage brings with it a variety of chapters, some of them painful, some of them terminal. But I want to go on a journey because I believe we have a problem. And the problem is not unique to the village church, but it is not that we are not without the challenge. Tomorrow, I will be celebrating with my wife 34 years of marital matrimony and I am so thankful for those years and I'm very thankful to you Colleen and I want to praise the Lord for this fantastic gift of closeness that when we follow God's ways brings hope in the midst of a dark world God is good and in God's goodness the Bible says that inheritance may come from a father but a good wife comes from God. It could be said the same of a good husband. When all the gifts of life are put together and added up, none can even come close to touching the blessings of a beautiful, lifelong married friend. So, in reflecting on this beautiful reality and the journey that God has put before us as a people, there have been chapters of education and experience that only life could give. Journeys that can teach like no classroom could educate. And I've been thinking about our connection to Jesus, wondering what He wants. All throughout Scripture, He calls us His betrothed. We are the one upon whom the affection and attentions of the universe have been focused. He brings his people into a covenant relationship, and it's not as if he comes without expectation. Would it be possible that the author of love could come to a relationship and not desire to be loved in return? Is it really possible that this fountain of affection that flows from heaven to man would not be the same place where God himself would love to experience the thrill 
of being special like the people in our lives are special. I'd like to suggest this morning that in contradistinction to the dysfunctionality of our society which treats divine things like they're common and common things like they're something really special and turns that which is unholy into holy or at least revered and that which is holy it condemns as restrictive and inhibitive and judgmental and condemnational and all these other things I'd like to suggest to you this morning that when God chose the metaphor of marriage to describe his relationship to us he picked the best thing he could find but it falls far short and yet when we examine the relationships around us and we think back to the best phases of our relational journey there was a point in time in which nothing thrilled us more than the sense that we were noticed and as that noticing grew into appreciation and adoration and love. I mean there are days in the chapters of many marital relationships in which all that can run through our mind especially in those early days is the thought of the next time I can be with that other person. That person that I hope will become the other part of me. Take your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 3. We are at the last of the seven messages to the churches and they begin and they end almost the same way. Revelation. Seven love letters to God's church. Revelation chapter 3 it says to the angel of the church in Laodicea write the Amen and the faithful and the true witness the beginning of creation of God say this I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot I wish How many times in scriptures do you read the words, I wish? There aren't too many places in the Bible where God says, this is what I'd really like. Only you can give it to me. Oh, we read about directives. We read about do's and don'ts. But there are not very many places in the Bible where you read the words from the mouth of God, I wish. This is what I would really like. Now you have to remember that God is love. Trying to describe, describe love outside of God is an impossibility. People try to do it. People try to take the fruit. I know your deeds, that you're neither caught, hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. Have you ever had one of those relationships where you know you like the person a lot more than they like you? Most of us are fortunate enough to have one of those. Why do I say fortunate? Because along the way of growing in love with another person you need to understand what a precious commodity is and how much pain can be given away sometimes unintentionally, sometimes carelessly. 
But usually everybody has one of those relationships where they don't like me like I like them. And as I watch through the years, it can happen on the gender lines on either side. But oftentimes, since we men mature much more slowly than you women, the men will take and do something that's a little bit, I think, generally typical to their gender, especially young men. But I wouldn't relegate it only to young men. They fix their eyes on that individual and they notice how kind and thoughtful they are. And immediately, as, as if one side of them throws the door of their heart open, and it's like they are now fully set on giving themselves to this person. Young ladies, on the other hand, are often just a little bit more careful. It can be either side. It can work either way. But oftentimes, a young woman will look at the situation and before she really gives her heart away, she's going to do a little thinking. And if she's a Christian, she's going to do a little praying, maybe a lot of praying. But we've probably all been in one of those relationships where you're giving more than the other person. I was in one of those relationships more than once. <laughs> but I want to talk about the last time. You see, the last time I knew that we weren't off to the best start. And I can remember going for a walk on a Sabbath afternoon here at Andrews University, and we had walked down by the dairy, I don't know, maybe out in some of the trails, and we were, it was actually a Sunday morning, and we were walking our way back up that long grade from down where the sewer plant used to be, up to the top of the hill where grounds and maintenance are and transportation. And I can remember as we were walking along there, uh, the young woman I was with had sensed that I had really kind of put my foot down on the gas pedal all the way. It was like, I want to see this relationship move along. And she turned to me and she said, I don't want a relationship with somebody that's ever going to need me. Like, need me, need me. I got the message. You're going after this way too aggressively. That whole next of that year, from about December onward, to May, I kind of sensed that nothing really changed. I'd buy her gifts. I'd carry her books. Uh, I'd take her out to eat. Not that I had a lot of money to do that. I was a poor college student. And uh, I can remember waiting for her in the lobby of the girls' dorm. And then finally we made a trip down to her grandparents. They were having their 50th wedding anniversary. And in the midst of that trip, she told me that this relationship really wasn't all that special. And it wasn't like it was a wonderful, it wasn't wonderful at all, but it wasn't like this was a new revelation to me. Okay, I got it. I took my foot off the gas pedal. I got out of the metaphorical car. I handed her the keys back. And I said, I'm done. Now, I'm here to tell you today there's nothing that dies harder than love. That's why when you've given yourself away to someone in the proper emotional way, when you've poured out your heart to someone and there's a rejection or a cooling, it's hard to go from I can't wait to be with them to why do I have to think about them all the time? All I'm feeling is pain. 
Now, the good news is, is that what happened in that moment was a crisis in the relationship. And that crisis in the relationship forced a redefinition of the relationship. And it just so happens that the woman who told me she never wanted me to need her has told her since then she'll retract that. Right, honey? <laughs> but I needed to do a little growing up. Now, when it comes to human relationships, they ebb and flow. About 35 years ago, the preeminent Christian psychologist in our country, James Dobson, whose programs aired on 450 radio stations in the United States and 250 around the rest of the world, whose programming was seen by millions, wrote an interesting book called Love Must Be Tough. I consider it a relational classic for people whose lives are drifting apart or farther than that are racing apart. In this book, he describes the typical response to someone whose marital choices have gone the wrong direction and there is an affair that is developing or is then in full force. He says the typical tendency, especially for a woman, but the typical tendency for the wounded partner is first of all disbelief. As a matter of fact, most people that are married to somebody who's not being faithful deny it. They refuse to see it. The symptoms are there. And by the way, it's not an expensive book. He has the 11 stages. He does the anatomy of an affair. 11 stages in there. If you care to read the book, it'll be a blessing to you in your own life and a blessing to you as you intersect with people who don't understand the premise of self-respect in a relationship. But people in the beginning will deny that it's happening. And then finally, after it's evident that it's happening, the one who's been victimized will take the blame for causing it. And the one who's causing the affair will be glad to blame them too. These emotional, strange curveballs that come to us in relationships, there is a sense of panic in which a person thinks, oh no, I've made these mistakes, I'm going to be left all alone. And then there is a sense of smothering, chasing someone who clearly does not want to be with you right now. And in effect, what lots of people do is actually chase their spouse away by almost forcing themselves into their life when the statement, secret though it has been, the statement that they're making is, I really want to be with someone else. Now, why would I choose this as a subject matter for us to look at this morning? Because if God has chosen marriage as the metaphor for his relationship to the human race, when Jim Nibel was up here this morning, he was referencing to Psalm 8, when I consider the heavens and the work of your hands, what is man that you're mindful of him? Why would God, with a cosmos as vast as ours, turn his emotional attention at the sacrifice that would cause great pain? Why would he turn all of that towards us? And yet God, once he turns it that way, looks to enter into a relationship with his people. Now, in the last 50 years, 
the Western church in America, which is different than the Western church in Europe. Europe is generations ahead of us in the wrong direction in regards to spiritual things. And of course, some of those things we can't particularly uh, hold against them as they've seen abuses of church power through the centuries that the church has been prominent in their communities. But the American church, by and large, has been a more vibrant spiritual community. But in the last 50 years, we've seen the world romancing the church in such a way that the church itself is now starting to show signs of being the dist partner in the relationship. In other words, Jesus himself who poured out all of heaven for our redemption doesn't appear to be quite as attractive right now as the things that our money, our time, and a permissive society will allow. Nobody should shame anybody in this society. That's the unpardonable sin. And so off with that old-fashioned religion. We haven't totally expunged it from society. We're just well on our way to doing it. But in this journey of the last 50 years, rich and increased with goods, the church has found itself more and more marginalized in the lives of its members. And don't think God doesn't notice. This message at the end of time is written from a scorned lover who says, you know what? You can love me or not love me. But the relationship we've entered into is not a business partnership. It's not just for spiritual transactions. The relationship we've entered into is a relationship of a deep, powerful, passionate commitment. I went farther than I've gone for anything else in the universe to redeem you. You're mine. But if you don't want to be, I hung on that cross so you could declare it so. But don't be fooled. I am not going to be in a dysfunctional relationship where I smother you and you blame me, and you walk away from me, and you never come to the fact that what we had, or maybe the residues of what we have, are precious. Jesus starts out with the book to the Ephesians in chapter 2, and he says, this is the one thing I have against you. You've lost your first love. And when he ends in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17, he's saying the same thing. But I'm not giving up just yet. You just need to understand something. God is not afraid to precipitate a crisis in order to bring people to their proper attentiveness. And what God will do and what God does is He gives people choices, but He does not come along for the dysfunctional ride where we can have the other woman, in this case the world, and Him too. Some pretty unpleasant chapters in this book. Lots of interviews and letters and engagement with people that have experienced the pain of betrayal. But if there is a formula for losing your spouse, it is, as Ellen White would say, especially writing to women, losing your own identity in the marriage. And when someone decides that they're not going to be safe, they're not going to safeguard the sacred circle. You know, there's only two people supposed to be in that sacred circle. And when they get a little casual about who gets to find their way farther into the emotional dynamics of their lives, and when somebody is actually in the midst of forming an alien bond, there should be from any self-respecting Christian man or woman, a precipitated crisis that says in effect the same thing that Jesus is saying here in the book of Revelation. 
You can have me or you cannot have me, but you can't have me and have her too. And we know in the book of Revelation there's two women. Now, there are signs that go along with this componentry of unfaithfulness. I'm not going to spend my time looking at those today, but I do, I do want to make sure you understand one thing. There is an appropriate way to relate to a spouse that lots of people won't do because they're afraid they're doing it the wrong way. Take your Bibles and go back to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 20. I was standing in front of about a hundred young students at Maxwell Academy in Nairobi, Kenya, not too many months ago. And as I was standing there getting ready to make a presentation, I asked them, jealousy, is it good or is it bad? And without missing a beat, have you ever, if you've ever been teaching a group, sometimes you'll ask a question and they sit there in silence. Why do they do that? Because they don't know what you want to hear. And nobody wants to look foolish. So they sit there in silence. Sometimes they come out because they clearly know what you want to hear and they tell you. And it comes out with a resounding unanimity. But I've never had a, for instance, when so many people gave me the wrong answer with so much confidence as I had two months ago. I said, jealousy, is it good or bad? And without skipping a beat, they came out with unanimous confidence. Bad. I thought to myself, whoa. What Kool-Aid are they drinking? And you're saying, Pastor, what Kool-Aid are you drinking? Well, I'm drinking from the water of life. And you know what? After 34 years of protecting and maintaining and being blessed in a beautiful love relationship, I want to talk to you about it. So let's look at the Ten Commandments. Could we do that? Exodus chapter 20. And let's see if we can calibrate properly how a Christian marriage relationship works. Exodus chapter 20. It says, Then God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The marginal reading says beside me. That would be much more in keeping with the intents of the marital metaphor and the rest of Scripture. Jesus will say, You cannot serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other. Exodus chapter 20 verse 2 is not an invitation to have a pantheon of gods. Exodus chapter 20 verse 3 is a statement about the primacy of God. The deliverance out of Egypt was an amazing, spectacular affair, and God was reminding them that He had never done this for or on behalf of any other people. And the relationship they now were going to have was going to be singular, selective, and ideally protected. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a what? Jealous God. Now, I'm here to tell you, the jealousy that goes with insecurity can be good or bad. If the insecurity is rooted and your own inability to trust at all, that kind of jealousy, that kind of desire for something you don't have or fear can be very wrong. But in a properly understood covenant relationship like marriage, 
jealousy is actually a God-ordained safety zone, safety net, when somebody starts to drift. Now, you think people don't drift. Unfortunately, I hate to say, I hope the statistics are not true, but back in the 80s when the American Psychological Association did a survey, they found that 50% of all adults over 40 had had an affair. Now, I should surely hope that it would not be that high in the rank and file of the Christian church, and I should surely hope it would be even less in the experience of God's remnant people. But there are people listening to me right now, some on the internet, some in this room, for whom they've either been the victim of or the victimizer by poor choices. And jealousy is a God-ordained response that comes out of a covenant relationship that is special. And that specialness can only be special when two people promise the same things and two people in encouragement and accountability stick to the promise. And if you think that every person walking the face of the earth didn't notice what you noticed about your spouse, you need to think again. There are other people out there whose lives are not rooted in Christ. They're not satisfied in their own self-experience. And they're looking for happiness from somewhere else. And your spouse or you personal look like the solution. And you may even go through a phase of life when you wonder about yourself and that person that's willing to flirt with you and, and lower the societal norms that would create boundaries between people who are married or people who are married and people who aren't. Those boundaries have never been lower in the history of the United States than they are right now. As one person said, it's never been easier to have an affair and never been har harder to keep it a secret. Thank you, Facebook. So here we are, right in the very first description of who God is. Why would He choose, writing with His own finger on a piece of blue stone, why would God choose to say, you need to know something about me. I'm a jealous God. Ah, pastor, must be some deeper explanation. Maybe. Turn over to chapter 34. Exodus chapter 34. I want to make sure you understand that if there was someone who was unwilling to have a third party in the relationship like the world, you've met him. His name's Jehovah. Exodus chapter 34. We'll start with verse 12. Watch yourself. That's what the New American Standard says. Watch yourself. Pay attention. The Bible will say, take diligence under the issues of the heart. Watch yourself and that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you're going, or it will become a snare in your midst. Listen, when you make a covenant with your spouse, you need to watch yourself, and you need to make sure that you're not slowly lowering the separating wall that defines something precious on the inside and common on the outside. But rather, verse 13, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their ashram. I'm going to give you this great land, he says, but I'll tell you what. They were romanced with self and licentiousness and the gods of this age, and they are to have no place in your life. Verse 14, for you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord whose name is, you see that? Jealous. And if you didn't get it, the verse repeats it, is a jealous God. 
I'm here to tell you Jesus is not okay when the affections of his church become streams running in the streets of the world. Jesus is not okay when the agony and the suffering and the focus of all of the heartache on that Via Della Rosa. Jesus is not okay when he senses that our love for him is waning. Turn over to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. We're getting down towards the end of the books that Moses would write. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Verse 23. So watch yourselves. Hmm. I think Paul says, take heed unto yourself. I think Paul says, examine yourself to see if you be in the faith. These themes run through the Scriptures. Are you ever stopping? The Sabbath is a perfect opportunity to stop and be alone with God and do some serious thinking, especially if the Holy Spirit's been tapping you and then grabbing your shoulder and then shaking you. Watch yourselves that you do not forget the covenant of the Lord your God which He made with you. And make for yourselves a graven image in the form of anything against which the Lord your God has commanded you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Turn over to chapter 6. Chapter 6, looking around verse 15. We'll start with 13. You shall fear only the Lord your God, and you shall worship Him and swear by His name. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you, for the Lord your God is in the midst of you, is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you, and He will wipe you off the face of the earth. It's interesting reading one of the stories in here. The woman was completely convinced that her husband could have an affair, blame it on her, but she could not be angry with him. Friends, I'd like to know where we get some of these strange ideas. It's as if some emotions are okay, especially the ones that are nice. But those emotions that are set there as, as flares, those emotions that are set there as responses to gross evil, somehow the Christian spouse never gets angry. Why does God have permission to get angry? I'm not suggesting that you have a free willy roam of your emotions. Some of us get irritated and angry over things for which there's nothing to do but repent. But there is a type of anger that doesn't need repented of. And it's the kind of anger that stands up to the gross injustice and the unloveliness that takes that which is special and treats it less than common, it actually stomps it into the mud. And it goes farther that and says to the person who's being stomped into the mud, it's your fault. Come on, friends. Let's have enough love inside of us to not be so focused on us and recognize that there are moments when somebody ought to be upset. When God says in Revelation 13, I'm willing, if I have to, to spit you out. 
It is not a, a moment of, of divine neutrality. If anything moves the heart of God, it's us. But it is moved so that we could be with Him forever. And when we treat things that are evil like they're just little bumps on the road around Walmart, just little speed bumps, when instead they're bridges that have been blown up by bad decisions, when we treat colossal sin and heinous acts of unfaithfulness to the covenants, God himself, I believe, is angry. And perhaps this is why Paul will write in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, you're all rejoicing in how full of grace you are. Put the person out and let them find out. Precipitate a crisis. Precipitating a crisis is the way of waking someone up. And as Dobson will put it in his book, Maybe the person should hear a half a dozen people from his societal zones tell him that it's your fault. And they come down to the very end. Why does everybody think I'm a bad guy? Why does everybody say it's my fault? The ability of the human heart to put a Teflon coating on, the ability of the spiritual mind to be dulled is hardly beyond our ability to imagine. And yet people do it. Joshua chapter 24, verse 19. Turn there. Joshua is at the end of his life. Joshua 24. He's renewing the covenant. I want you to see what he says. Joshua chapter 24. Then Joshua said to the people, verse 19, You will not be able to serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. It's not that they couldn't serve him, but on their own, they were going to fail. And of course, the history records that as true. It goes on to say, he is a jealous God. So let's move. If there's one thing I do not want, (laughs) is I do not want a laissez-faire relationship with my dear wife. If there's one person that I want to show love and give love, and if there's one person that I want to show love to and give love to, she's sitting right over here. And while I am very secure in her love, it doesn't mean that there's never a little flashing yellow light that goes on in my mind that says, you know what, is everything okay? You can't be married for 34 years and not think that your marriage is going to move in and out of some dangerous zones, especially when you live in such a public role circulating with so many people. But my real point today is not even about marriage. It's the fact that God's church has gotten to where they're very self-assured and the more people can use the word grace, the more comfortable they feel even though God is in heaven saying, why are the preachers making these people feel secure in their lukewarm condition? Why is it that people can be experiencing what I have to offer but have no interest in what my wishes are, which are to be loved? How is it that we can be in this situation and the church gets just all the more comfortable, everything they need, even messages from the front that they're okay, I'm okay, you're okay. 
The church itself in the 21st century has entered into a dysfunctional relationship where preachers are afraid to precipitate a crisis and say, you know what? It's not all okay. We cannot watch attendance. We cannot watch finance. We cannot watch missionary endeavor all slowly go down, wither and die on the vine. And God's preachers are supposed to say, I'm okay, you're okay. Just don't be upset with me. Just love me. Blame it on me. Blame it on the church. It seems like we're getting good at that. Blame it on the church. The young people are leaving the church. Why? It's the church's fault. Oh, I'm not going to say the church has not any fault. Should we blame it on you when your children leave the church? Oh, every honest person could say, I wish I would have done better. But I wonder if the proper application of the principle would be such that we recognize everybody's freedom to choose. When you study the scriptures, when a man considered that his wife might be unfaithful to him, he brought her to the temple. They took dust off the floor of the temple. They mixed it with some water. She drank the water. If she bloated, she was guilty. But you never read in that narrative that the husband is ever held responsible for her choices. I'm afraid we've turned into a society that is quite comfortable in our dysfunction. As long as I've got a good job, a nice car, a good house, and can pay my bills, everything's okay. But Jesus looks down from heaven and he says, you know what? This casual connection you have with me was never what I had in mind. The way I laid down my life for you is the invitation I have for you to love me and lay down your life for me. The word zealous itself has become a tainted word. The only zealous people are the wacko ones out there. But I'll tell you what, you find a 21-year-old man in love with a 21-year-old woman, he's pretty zealous. At least they used to be. Even some of that's changing as internet pornography and other things find their way into the developing brain of young men and young women. So what's the point? What gives? Someday soon, a small cloud the size of a man's hand is going to appear in the eastern sky. Jesus is going to come. You know what he's looking for? The Bible says he's looking for a church, imagery of a bride, without a spot or wrinkle. It's not that they haven't had warts and blemishes and been unpleasant at times for him to deal with, but their love for him has grown to the degree that they would follow him anywhere. Love will be the only power strong enough to conquer the grip of sin and the shackles of our past, be it genetic or environmental. It is love for Jesus that will give us the desire and the power to be free. But that love is measured by deeds. Talk all you want. The Old Testament covers this. These people serve me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. We're not much better in the 21st century. And what I'm saying to you today, if God were to lay all the activities of your life out on the line, would an angel looking over his shoulder say, what a zealous follower. When I was a seminarian, for all of you that support and teach and I would walk up and down the hallways. There was in the stairwell closest to the business building a poster of a man standing on a mountain. And the caption under the poster was this, if someone accused you of being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to prove it? 
listen, I'm not even going to put out a list of the competitors. You're all intelligent people. You ought to make a list of the competitors. The idols of this age are not wood and stone. They tend to be of a completely different genre, a different nature. You ought to make a list yourself as a family and say, where do we suspect that our lives have a tendency to bend and to bow? What's in front of God in my life? What is keeping me from a divine affection? What is it about His church that I can so casually brush it to the side? When the church is the apple of His eye and it is the body of Christ of whom Christ Himself is the head. Zeal. The one thing I'm not doing and the one thing my wife is not doing is I'm not planning on one day of my life where the journey of love goes backwards. The journey of love is the higher ground. Deeper experiences, not only here on earth, but throughout all eternity. Marriage, instead of being the end of love, and a white right, should be its beginning. I don't know where you're at, but if your life and your love relationship is not progressing onward and upward, it's probably because when the relationship needs a test, when it needs a recalibration, fear or self-interest keeps you from precipitating the crisis. The crisis may be a conflict moment. It may be, if this problem is worse, it may be a separation moment. But if you don't let love have its way in your life and do its work, then you get what you get. All the late nights, all the long walks, all the earnest prayers, all the arguments, all of the heavy conversations that I've had in 34 years have all been worth it. But I'm not planning to be going backwards on the road of love when I'm supposed to be going upwards. And I know this, that when Jesus can say to you and can say to me, this is not the relationship we're supposed to have. The only person that can choose to change is me and you. It'll be a strange act of God to someday say you need to leave. We don't know each other. By God's grace that doesn't have to be you or me. But let's not go through the stages of denial and deceit where we tell ourselves and we tell God hey everything's good everything's good because God himself has precipitated through time and salvation history crisis after crisis to make sure we know our own hearts friends the church should be zealous for the cause of Christ. The church should be zealous for the mission of Christ. The church should be zealous for the body of Christ. The church should be zealous 
because their maker is jealous that their relationship have nothing between and that true love actually reverberates in the heart there are so many temptations now that draw away our love and our fidelity to Christ it's not funny and very few people it appears are willing to say I think that might be an idol in your life I've never met a person who blurred the lines who said yeah I'm blurring the lines and I've never met a person when I've said I think that might be an idol in your life they say yeah that is it all meets with the same denial so what's today it's the first Sabbath at the end of a school year it's a time to stop and think it's a time to examine my summer journey and say to myself does anything need recalibrated what do the objective facts say They're not easy conversations. But I do know this. Jesus said, I'm standing outside the door knocking. For as much as I've realized that it's a very, very loose and lackadaisical relationship you have with me, for as much as I know you don't feel for me like I feel for you, I'd still like to rebuild it. I'd still like to come in. This morning, friends, don't let this summer be a regular summer. Skip the amusement parks and find some quiet place to go. Turn off the TV. Put the pause button on Facebook. Send a few less grams. Give up the tweets. And say, God, I don't want to be spit out. Speak to me. Give me the courage and the will to see, not the denial and the deceit. If you think our relationship with God is different than people's relationships with others, think again. We didn't change. But God has the power to change us. And this church and your church, wherever you're from, should become a zealous church. Because the jealous God of the universe gave up his son to suffer and die and make you his in a covenant he shares with nobody else not even the angels for time and for eternity amen